Welcome to CooperCast, the Brass, Levine, and Cooper episode. This is your host, Al's web polisher, John Sachs. In this episode, Al talks about riding with Brass and Levine, this diamond ring, and being in the Northeast blackout while tripping on mescaline. When I first met Schroeder, I wasn't very good. At? Songwriting. Okay. And I wrote them myself. Yeah. And so I just kind of bounced around. I didn't I didn't get signed by him or anything. Mm. But I made friends with Wally Gold. And uh, and he would coach me a little bit. And then I, I actually got a, a paying job with the company that had Brass and Levine signed. And they put us together. Uh, Hal Webman was the guy that did that. So, so let me ask you a question. Um, you probably don't remember the day that you guys wrote this Diamond Ring because you wrote a lot of songs every day. Exactly. And this one just turned up, and then you heard later Snuffy whatever. Snuff Garrett. Snuff Garrett recorded it, and you said, let me hear it. And you said, oh, God, it's horrible. And then it becomes number one. And you say, well, maybe it's not that, maybe it's not that horrible. But No, I, the thing is... I mean, if you play the demo, yeah, because we wrote it for the Drifters, yeah, it was a black song. If if you play the demo, which is fantastic on its own, and you also did it on one of your albums the way you wanted it, yes. But nevertheless, um... so what I'm saying is, when Schroeder played me the Gary Lewis record, I, I was underwhelmed. At least underwhelmed. It was like, you know, to me it was a black song. Right. right. Be- because of uh, uh, the demo. But then again, uh, Hound Dog was written for Big Mama Thornton by, was it? Same thing. Right. Same thing. White guys writing a song for a black singer. And then the song they wrote for Big Mama Thornton, Hound Dog, got taken over by Elvis, who was kind of in the well you know the famous thing if i could find a white guy who sings like a black guy I could be rich says his manager and next thing you know elvis is the king of everything you did you tell me how many songs you guys would typically do in a day or was how many it wasn't i didn't think like that right but i think at one point you told me that that you were just a song factor you were just writing songs well that's what we did for a living right and you might so we came in every day and we wrote songs right some so, day some days we didn't write a song some days we wrote two. Yeah. And then we had, you know, uh, uh, when there's a team of three people, Yeah, there's a lot of fighting. Creative fighting. Ar- yeah, arguing. Right. So there's that. The, the thing, the advantage I had over them was that I had an instrument. Shape so no matter what happened, I was going to write the music, and they were going to write the words. Then... We come to a situation where, okay, three of you guys, you got the number one song, but, and I think you said you celebrated by going to one of the you know high-end restaurants, which you didn't even have the money for because you had no money for... No, it, it wasn't a high-end restaurant. It was the... The hip. The best restaurant that was walking distance. 1650. Yeah. But then, the th- one of the three breaks off and says, I'm out of here. Oh, that would have been brass. Yeah, and he and you would think that having the number one would be a golden ticket, right? Well, it helped us a lot. But he still left 
the biz. What did he go off and do? Do you know? Yes, I've, I've about 60, no, more than that. About 10 years ago, I found his uh, obituary uh-huh. in the paper. Yeah. And I went, wow, he was a rabbi. He became a rabbi. Yeah. Wow, that's really different. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not too familiar, you know, with the life of a rabbi, but I don't think it involves getting stoned every day and writing songs. No, no, I, he went. He went the other way. Wow. So, so Irwin, Irwin became a famous songwriter. Now, did he then partner with somebody else for uh, a musical team? Mm-hmm. One afternoon, Irwin and I took some organic mescaline and decided to go to the movies. And that was the day of the New York City blackout. Yes. So you guys are sitting in the movie theater. <laughs> yeah, in the movie stops. Tripping on mescaline. Uh, was it mescaline? Yeah, it says organic mescaline. And they, so you're sitting in the theater and the movie stops and you don't even know if that's mescaline or what, but the movie really did stop. The whole city stopped, and then you guys wander out in the street, and everybody's... That was the freakiest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Going out in the street from the safety of the movie theater. Right. And I was in Manhattan. Yeah. And had to get to Queens. Right. It was... It was unbelievable. You said you actually got pushed onto a bus... Yeah. By the crowd, just pushing yeah. you. Like you didn't even intend to get on the bus. <laughs> and you're and you're and, and this is all happening while you're on masculine. Yeah. Oh man. No, it was unbelievable how I got home. How did you get home? Bus. You did get on the bus. Yeah. I don't think that we could take the subway. Right, because it's electric. Yeah. So the next day, but you stayed overnight at somebody's house. You didn't get home that night. You had to call your wife and really, yeah, I think so. I remember walking around. It was so freaky. Yeah, it was, you know, like marijuana come to life. I looked at Irwin and said, "I'm so high, I can't even see the movie anymore." He concurred, and we realized that the movie had actually stopped. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't the three of us. It was just me and Erwin? Right, at that time. Okay. I remember the movie. It was The Loved One. Yeah, I don't even remember the name of that movie. Oh, good movie. Coffee shops jammed with people eating by candlelight. At the height of my high, I got pushed onto this downtown bus. Bus stopping at every block, and people were forcing their way in the back doors, and it was Panicsville. And you're on mescaline. I called home to the suburbs, chilled out my wife, and told her I'd return when the power did. My friends and I that sat on a tour of Greenwich Village visiting friends, observing various psychodramas, and killing the whole night until we returned to their apartment to crash, by this time, I was down from mescaline and exhausted physically and mentally, laying my head in the pillow and shut my eyes. And then the city comes back to life. And the lights went back on. Frankly, it was the most horrendous sound 
ever heard as every appliance in New York City swung back into action at the same time. I looked at my watch and noted that it was almost 12 hours to the second since the blackout began. This has been CooperCast, the Brass Levine and Cooper episode, brought to you by every appliance in New York City. Look for more episodes coming up and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just about any podcast distributor and tell your friends.